In any context, music is a powerful medium. Our brains play well with it. And when we spend years singing hymns and worship music and listening to CCM of all description, an insane amount of information makes it into our brains and stays there. We don't retain much from sermons. We retain music, and it's the music that taught us what we believe. We get a lot of our doctrine from hymns, worship songs, Christian rock, and more. The result? It made us delusional, narrow-minded, and clueless about just how toxic our thinking actually was. I can remember just hearing that on the radio and thinking, seriously, Bob? Really? 16 years old? That's pushing it, my friend. That is really, really pushing it. Life is worth the living because he lives. Let me tell you something, evangelical, on the fence evangelical, wherever you are on the spectrum there, life is worth the living because you live. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get Unbound. Now, I have to wonder how many Christians realize just how much more of their doctrine and theology they get during the worship service than they do from any sermon. It's true. To the evangelicals and ex-evangelicals out there, just think about it. How many worship songs do you know by heart? And how many quotes from your pastor's sermons can you quote off the cuff? People remember song lyrics. Music impacts the way that they think, and evangelicals are no exception. Most can tell you their 10 favorite worship songs, but they forget sermons completely by the time they're done stiffing the server at Olive Garden, probably by the time they get around to shaking the pastor's hand and telling him how inspiring it was. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight, we're approaching the subject of Christian music from the perspective of toxic messaging, and more specifically, toxic messaging that perpetuates toxic thought and keeps people believing in errant concepts like the notion that God actually loves anyone. But that's just the beginning of the conversation. Before we get any further into that, it's the Christians Behaving Badly segment we hoped we would never have to cover, but here we are. I'm just going to call this Christians Behaving Badly, I Just Can't Even edition. That's a good title for this segment. Yes, I agree, unfortunately. Well, first off, the thing that's on pretty much everyone's minds... The website Politico published a preliminary draft of a Supreme Court decision that overturns Roe v. Wade. This has caused an uproar, as it should. This decision won't be final until next month. At least next month. At least next month. Yeah, but it will be finalized. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The decision is written by Justice Samuel Alito, who was nominated to the Supreme Court by George W. Bush in 2006. The draft opinion runs 98 pages, including a 31-page appendix of historical state abortion laws. A quote from the decision reads, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. And further in the document, Roe expressed the feeling that the 14th Amendment was the provision that did the work, but the message seemed to be that the abortion right could be found somewhere in the Constitution, and that specifying its exact location was not of paramount importance. To who? 
Yeah, right. The Constitution does not prohibit the citizens of each state from regulating or prohibiting abortion. The draft concludes, Roe and Casey arrogated that authority. We now overrule these decisions and return that authority to the people and their elected representatives. The document also conflates the pro-choice movement as synonymous with the eugenics movement and pushes adoption as a solution to unwanted children. Okay, well, you know what? I don't completely disagree with that. No. The issue here is someone telling another human being that they have to have a baby for someone else to adopt. Right. That is not up to anyone to decide for anyone else. And I'm in good company thinking that way because half the people in this country think that abortion should be legal and on demand. That's half the population. And yet the Christian right's going to get their way. Right. Finally, after all of these years, they're going to get their way and we'll be one step closer to living in Margaret Atwood's Republic of Gilead. Yeah, that that's worrying. If and when this decision goes into effect, 27 states are likely to ban abortion soon after Roe v. Wade is overturned. The states will be in the notes if you want to know which ones. Some of them have trigger laws that are going to just go into effect immediately after Roe v. Wade is overturned. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's terrifying. It really is. Some of these laws are absolutely terrifying. And when I say welcome to the Republic of Gilead... I am not overstating. No, we're not exaggerating. No. I'm going to conclude this story here, and a little later in my segment, I'm going to talk a little more about this and my other stories. I haven't read Alito's decision yet, and I would highly recommend the excellent article by Hemant Mehta on Only Sky Media. It's called, If the Supreme Court Overturns Roe, Conservative Christians May Regret It. We're all going to regret it. Yeah. I'll read it when my brain stops screaming at me. You know, I I would love to know when that's going to be because for me it's not anytime soon. Yeah, same, same. And on pretty much the same note, the Supreme Court ruled this week that Boston officials violated a man's free speech rights when it refused to erect his Christian flag outside City Hall. The suit was brought by Harold Shirtliff the director and co-founder of Camp Constitution, a nonprofit group that promotes Christian nationalism. In 2017, Shirtliff applied for a permit to raise a Christian flag on a pole outside City Hall Plaza. This would be to commemorate Constitution Day and Citizenship Day, but the city of Boston rejected the request. City officials told him that no non-secular flags were allowed on the city's flagpole though they often raise the flag of visiting dignitaries' countries or the days to honor Americans of various heritage. The plaintiff argued that these flags often contain religious symbols, and the flag of Boston even contains the phrase, God be with us as he was with our fathers. So, of course, he sued the city, saying his constitutional rights had been violated. He lost this case in the first court he brought it to, and he appealed the decision. Various groups for the separation of church and state, including the American Humanist Association, urged the court to uphold the decision in an amicus brief. This appeal was also denied. Unfortunately, the plaintiff appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, who unanimously ruled for the Christian nationalist, saying that Boston went too far. Though there is an easy fix for this. Justice Stephen Breyer says in his opinion, the city's lack of meaningful involvement in the selection of flags or the crafting of their messages leads us to classify the flag raisings as private, 
not government speech, though nothing prevents Boston from changing its policies going forward. Of course, until Boston fixes the flagpole policy, there's nothing preventing the Ku Klux Klan, for instance, for applying to display their flag. So... Hopefully, the city of Boston hurries up and changes their policies. Yeah, here's hoping. Yeah. I mean, it it just it all feels like such a it all feels like such a game. It, it is. feels like a big sick twisted game. You bring these cases to the Supreme Court and it just starts this whole game of ping pong. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, we're going to rule in this way, but you know what? Boston can now change its uh, its policy on this and uh, and you know, it'll just open up the door for a whole nother set of lawsuits that, you know, that this this theocratic bullshit excuse for a Supreme Court that we have going on right now yeah. will just continue to just hand the Christians any fucking thing that they want. And this is going to be for decades. Yeah. Um, those of you who didn't go to the polls in 2016, thank you so much. This is why I'm sorry, but this is why we're here right now. Yeah. Because too many people sat on their asses and let that idiot get into the white house and Agreed. this is and this is the penance that we are going to pay for it and we're going to pay for it until the day we die our children are going to pay for it and probably our children's children are going to pay for it too and in oh for fuck's sake news a christian teacher in tulsa oklahoma is preaching to her students in her public school classroom and it's not the first time she's done it of course she's faced no consequences for this because this is where we are now. Yes, unfortunately. According to the Freedom From Religion Foundation, Memorial High School biology teacher Amy Cook created a prayer room in the back of her classroom where students could go and pray. It's a wall littered with Bible verses and the like. Of course it is. That's right. problematic enough. But one of her non-Christian students attempted to add a different kind of prayer to the wall. This one asked for the gods and goddesses to help students achieve their goals. You can just imagine how well this went over. Like a lead fucking zeppelin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From the submitted complaint, Mrs. Cook pulled our complainant out of class and berated them for not being a Christian. Mrs. Cook reportedly told our complainant that if they didn't repent, they would burn in hell and that she was required to intervene as a good Christian. Oh, brother. Yeah. Our complainant reports that Principal Dr. Rebecca Grooms and Assistant Principal Jim Vestal are aware of this illegal conduct, but have taken no action to correct it. This teacher has also railed against sex education and LGBTQ issues. Because of course she has. Yes. When she briefly ran for political office, she wrote... Oh God, I know, oh my I know. God. Please stop. She wrote on her campaign website about the liberal brainwashing and political indoctrination being slipped into our schools and claims she fought back by modeling Christian values for the students in her classroom. That's fighting back? I guess. Okay, whatever. She insisted that modeling her faith didn't amount to indoctrination, which is literally contradicted by the prayer room in the classroom. When Cook's campaign against accurate, comprehensive sex education occurred, the principal supposedly backed her up because she is a believer herself. Oh, God. The Freedom From Religion Foundation is demanding the school take action. 
They are asking that the district take immediate action to ensure that Cook no longer discusses her religious beliefs with students, encourages students to pray, shames students for their religious beliefs, or in any way promotes or endorses religion to students. And the district must immediately remove the prayer room from Cook's classroom. Given Cook's egregious behavior, FFRF is advising that she be terminated and administrators at the school be reprimanded and reminded of their duties under the law. Fucking A. Seriously. Fucking we, A. We can just hope. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm more hopeful for success on something like this than I am with yeah. uh, anything that would go to the Supreme Court. And, you know, I, I have my doubts as to whether or not something like this would. Yeah. The sad part is that if it did, guess who they'd side with? Because <laughs> this is what we're going to be dealing with for the rest of our lives, you and I. Yeah. I'm not looking forward to that. No, me neither. I don't, I don't even want to think about uh, what this country is going to look like when you and I check out. Or if it's even going to still be here in its present form. Yeah. Probably won't be, to be no. perfectly honest. Yeah. Lastly, as much as I don't want to think about it, these stories are all related. All of them involve Christians interfering in public spaces and private ones to push their Christianity on others. You know that video of Anna Kasparian of the Young Turks talking about how tired she is of dealing with people who push the Bible and try to dictate how she lives her life? Yeah, I'm feeling that sort of a way right now. Yeah. I'll yeah. bet. And uh, I, I can second that. The whole pro-life thing, it's never going to have its crosshairs on me. No. But it just, it, it still infuriates me. Yeah. Because there are people that out there that I care about a lot that are going to be affected by this and not just in matters of abortion. Just keep your eyes open. Keep your ears open, people, because yeah. the decisions that are made about this are going to, they're, they're going to affect Everything from abortion rights to same-sex marriage to all kinds of things that, um, that, that have made their way into American life and pushed us further toward a truly secular society. All of that shit's about to go away. Yes. And, and it's sad. Just the, the giant leap backward that we're about to take because this will open up the door for anything that Christians don't like to be eradicated. Yeah. And yeah, you can say anything that you want about states' rights. And I'm and I'm pleased to be living in a state that is going to be largely unaffected by this because our uh, state government has made it abundantly crystal clear that nothing's going to change here in Massachusetts. Right. But when more than half of the states out there are standing at the ready to enact trigger laws that place the women of this country directly in the crosshairs. Yeah. It may never directly affect me, but it directly affects me. Right. You know, does that make any sense? Because it affects society. Yes. It affects all of society. True. Because and 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 it reinforces any opinion and any legislation that um, that caters to these kinds of puritanical views. Mm-hmm. Finally, these people are going to be able to tell same-sex couples that love between them isn't of the same caliber right. as the love between a man and a woman. Um, there's so much more. That's the one that sticks in my head. 
but I know that there's more. There's a lot more. Oh, there's a lot more. And, I have you know, a couple of them. Oh, yeah. And we'll get into more of it next week because yeah. that's what we're going to be talking about. I'm going right. to do the promo just a little bit early here. And next week, we're going to be talking about what pro-life actually is and what it isn't. And we're also going to delve into some of the ramifications mm -hmm. of what happens if Roe v. Wade gets overturned. And I'm sorry, it's going to get overturned. Yeah. It's just a reality that we're that we're living with here. It's just countdown to Gilead at this point. So next week we're going to delve into that a little bit more, and I'll have my thoughts a little bit more straight. But you know, <laughs> yeah. because of some of the circles that I move in and some of the people, I mean, with all due respect, I'm part of an alternative lifestyle too. Right. And uh, you know, with some of the circles that I move in, there are a lot of people that I know who are going to be affected by this. In ways that never even come close to touching the concept or subject of abortion. But this is what happens when you give even an inch to the evangelical Christian right. True. This is what happens when liberals, when progressives don't vote. Yeah. If you pander to the, to the evangelicals, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. They'll take a lot more than a mile. Yes. And, you know... All 45 and his cronies cared about was what the nominees thought about abortion. Yeah, that was the question. That was that the they question. Had. This, this has been planned yes. since 19. that idiot took, took the White House. Yeah. Well, honestly, it's been planned since 1980, but I guess we'll, we'll get yeah, into if, that a if, little If more. you want to be real technical about it. Yeah. But they finally, they finally found their meat puppet yeah. in 2016. Yeah. And unfortunately, he was a very charismatic and influential meat puppet. But they mm. found him, and they got him in there, and here's what we get to deal with now. Yeah. But, you know, this is just the beginning. In the next few years, the rights we've fought decades to put into place will be gone, unless they're codified into law. Gay marriage, done. Interracial marriage, Yes, that was done. the other one I was thinking of, yep. Easy access to birth control, mm -hmm. or any access to birth control, one of the first things they're going to try and block and do away with. Of course, because welcome to Gilead, people. Yep. Yeah, you see, you you thought of more of them than I did. I mean, I, I had heard a bunch of this in the last couple of days, yeah. but you had it more straight in your head. And all of this we're going to expand on next week. That's because I wrote this when I was furious. Mm -hmm. Not only that, though, women's rights could take even more of a tumble. We as a society have such a short memory. Oh, tell me about it. That we forget that women's rights have not been here very long. Before 1974, women couldn't get a credit card in their own name without a husband or a man to co-sign for her. Yep. It wouldn't be until 1980 when the EEOC declared that sexual harassment was a form of sex discrimination. Marital rape did not become a crime in all 50 states until 1993. Mm. The birth control pill was approved as a contraceptive in 1960 for married women, but it was still illegal in some states and illegal to sell to unmarried women until 1972. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And no, people, I don't think, really take they, the time to think about this and realize that this has never been a good country for women to live in. No, it really hasn't. No. I could rant on, but I'm just going to end it with vote. Yes, please. The midterms are coming up. We cannot lose anything. And by all accounts, we're going to. 
Right. But here's the thing. This is going to happen in the next month or two. Right. And the elections will be in November. It's not enough to be pissed off. You have to be pissed off your couch, off your ass, in your car, walking down your street. I don't care what the fuck you have to do. Call a goddamn Uber and go to your polling place. Right. If you live in Western Massachusetts, call the spider. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll shut down the driving school for the day and just bring people to their polling places. You know, I'll I'll do it. Yeah. I will absolutely do it. <laughs> but just get out there and vote. Do not let the right take the seats that are up. Yeah. Okay. Don't, Don't let them take the seats. We need to make sure that the voice of reason remains intact and visible and in a majority in our yeah. government. We have to make sure. And the only way to make sure is to get off our fucking asses and vote. Vote That's like it. your life depends on because it. Because Be- it does. Because it does. Yes, absolutely. And on that happy note, we want to just let you know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Network. If you don't have the money to be able to support us financially at this point, we understand that completely. You can support us with your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, everything that helps make podcasts grow. And you could, like I say every week, be integral in someone getting free of the kind of mindset that allows this shit to happen, okay? And it is very, very important that we start steering more people's minds and brains and thought processes in the direction of things that actually help and benefit society. And let me tell you, and I will put it straight on record, evangelical Christianity does not benefit society. It is a toxin. It is a cancer. It needs to be eradicated, and you can help. If you can't help with your dollars, help with the other ways that I mentioned. Tell someone new about the show this week. Tell as many new people as you can about the show this week. And let's start helping people think a little bit better, see different perspectives than what they're going to get on Sundays from their pastors and other people that they trust as quote-unquote spiritual authorities. Let's show them the quote more excellent way that their book promises and never delivers. And you can help us in all of the ways that we mentioned, and we thank you in advance for at least considering helping us out financially here. So we already promoted next week, so I'm going to kind of breeze over that and jump directly to uh, May 22nd, where we will be doing our review of A Thief in the Night. And no, we aren't going to spend months poring over the Mark IV movies. We could. There's there's four of them in that series. Mm. But I think that the first one makes more than enough of a point And again, we're going to be looking at this from a little bit different of a perspective. We're going to be looking at it more from the psychology of scaring people to God. That's what this entire series was about. But the first movie is The Biggest Offender. It has the most uh, dogma and rhetoric out of all of them. And we're going to take a look at it just like we always do, scene by scene, line by line, and just take it apart. And I've got some interesting um, personal observations about these movies and the way that they were presented to me when I was young because they they weren't made for kids but they were made for young people that's the real scary part about this is that they wanted to hook them while they were young and they wanted to hook them with fear because at the end of the day they really don't have much else to go by so that's going to be a one and done with the mark four movies and I've already got a nice list of uh, of movies lined up going right into the fall that we're going to be reviewing for you. And I'm not going to spoil any of it because there's some good stuff in there, (laughs) stuff that you probably wouldn't expect. So we're just going to kind of leave that hanging and surprise you as we go along here. After that, 
it's another road test week. And to be perfectly honest, it was good brain time for me to not have to think about doing this when all of that chaos is going on. And uh, fingers crossed, we've got somebody coming in to to shadow tomorrow and hopefully we'll have another instructor and it'll uh, start loosening things up a little bit. But, you know, I know how these things go, too. It could go either way. And, you know, I'm I'm hopeful, but not breaking out the champagne just yet. That's going to be actually Memorial Day weekend. We're going to be taking that off for various reasons. It's also our anniversary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with the long weekend, hopefully it'll bring some nice weather. I Um, I feel like there should be a law against 55 degrees in May. But, (laughs) uh, But that's where we've been. And I'm hoping for a nice weekend. And I'm hoping for a bit of a brain break. I'm hoping for Saturday road tests and not Sunday road tests. I'm hoping (laughs) that I have a couple of days to just not have to think about work. And uh, and then I can recharge the brain cells and come up with... And actually, we've got a bunch of episodes mapped out at this point, too. So... At that point, I can just recharge the brain cells and get going on the next episode. Don't even have to really think about the topic. So, again, not going to spoil anything. We'll let you know (laughs) as we go. But for right now, let's get into this conversation about the toxic messaging that exists within Christian music. You know, when I first started researching this topic, I started looking at it the way I look at a lot of things in a really linear way. Let's start off with the hymns. Let's kind of um, segue into more um, contemporary Christian music. Let's talk about worship music. And it kind of had a progression in my head. But, you know, as happens a lot with this show, as research progressed, the focus of things kind of changed a little bit. So we're going to start with the hymns because for years and years, that was Christian music. The gospel quartets and traveling preachers all used the hymns to augment messaging that paints God, his love, and what living for him is like in a light that the Bible simply never does. And these songs lay the foundation for virtually all the toxic music littering the CCM airwaves today. The hymns are what Kurt Vonnegut would have referred to as, quote, the first germs in an epidemic of mind poisoning. So we're going to look at a couple sets of hymns that, that, Uh, fall into a couple of different categories here. And with this first set, I want to talk about the concept of toxic positivity. The psychologygroup.com defines toxic positivity this way, quote, we define toxic positivity as the excessive and ineffective overgeneralization of a happy, optimistic state across all situations. The process of toxic positivity results in the denial, minimization, and invalidation of the authentic human emotional experience. And if the hymns don't do that, I don't know what does. They then outline the signs of toxic positivity, most of which have a more personal correlation. But I liked number four, minimizing other people's experiences with, quote, feel good quotes or statements. Yeah. I remember back when we were doing the law of attraction stuff, Mm -hmm. that was a big thing. Oh, yeah. Just like mantras and little happy sayings. Oh, yeah. Because you couldn't have any sense of negativity. The universe doesn't understand negative. Right. So everything had to be ultra positive. Yeah. It's very Mm -hmm. tiring. Incredibly tiring. Exhausting. And uh, emotionally and mentally draining. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the funny thing is that I even found Christian sources that corroborate the sentiment. And it confirmed in my mind that they know. They know. 
at least the ones with even a little capacity for rational thought know this. I was amazed to find even one source that admitted it, but there's an organization out there called Kanos Project, and their website is kanosproject.com, and I do have the link up here. I'm going to just um, grab that real quick. I'm not going to read everything in this article. You can read it for yourself. It's in the show notes. I'm just going to read their bullet points here. There's a lot more to the article, but here's what they say about toxic positivity. And this is from an article called Why Christians Should Beware the Trap of Toxic Positivity. And here are the the reasons that they bullet point. Toxic positivity is a shallow substitute for hope. Lament is a biblical category we too often ignore. And keep in mind, this is a theist source. So from that perspective, you know, I I think that it's valid to, to bring that up. And lastly, they say that toxic positivity suppresses justice and disregards the experience of others. And I've seen that in more than one source, that uh, that description of it. So that, again, keep in mind, is in fact a theist source. So uh, they know. There's plenty of them out there that understand this. And you know what? There is a library of hymns out there that are all about this, that all center around these toxic positivity kind of themes. And we're going to look at just a few of them right now. Uh, First source that I came up with was a a funny little uh, blogspot blog from a guy who just calls himself just a curmudgeon. And I mean, if this guy's a curmudgeon, then I guess I am too, because I pretty much agreed with everything that he was talking about here. In his article, he says, these songs I will call toxic focus on themes of surrender, peace, and joy. Do these songs express the experiential realities of Christian life? And of course, the answer is no. So his first question here is, who has experienced perfect submission? This is from the hymn, Blessed Assurance. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending, bring from above. Echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I in my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. Isn't that just whimsical and lovely and not at all realistic? Yeah. Then there's leaning on the everlasting arms. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have a blessed peace in my Lord so dear, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. You know, If you learn to stand up for yourself, you wouldn't have to lean on anything. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there is that. Oh, yeah. At the cross is another great one here. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. How many Christians do you know that are happy all the day? (sighs) Except maybe for that dude who uh, showed up in my pastoral ministry practicum class, this guy who was seared into my brain. <laughs> you know, I've talked about him a bunch of times on this show, and I can still see him standing there. But uh, I'm thinking if there's an example of this, it would be someone whose brain is that addled by the Kool-Aid that they don't understand. It's They're kind of like the frog in the frying pan. 
you know, not understanding how bad things are and just going about their way. So that's just a couple from the uh, from that article. And there's more that are that kind of go off topic a little bit more, but make the same point. You can take a look at that at your leisure. But then I started thinking about some of the other ones like it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's just, you're you're sitting there with your house burning around you and yeah. refusing to leave. Yeah. That's, that's the picture I have in my head of this. Yeah. Let's see. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. That makes it all better, doesn't it? Then, then there's because he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. But what does that have to do with my life? You know, that's the question. Life is worth the living because he lives. Let me tell you something, evangelical, on the fence evangelical, wherever you are on the spectrum there, life is worth the living because you live. Not because a bunch of people made a bunch more people believe that a character in a book had power to make you happy and give you eternal life. Life is worth the living because you live. Do something positive and good and worthwhile with your life. And that does not, just for the just for the record, that does not include going to church. I actually uh, linked to the lyrics to this one, not that I actually need it because honestly, this was one of my favorites back in the day. I learned it at Word of Life, and every single time it came up in service, because for the longest time, even though we were in a reasonably progressive Pentecostal church, we also had a pastor who thought that it was perpetually 1955. (laughs) So uh, it took a while before we actually got around to singing modern praise and worship in my home church. So every time they pulled out the hymnal, I would hope for this one. It was a hymn called Heaven Came Down, and here is just a little bit of what's in there. I'm going to give you the first and last verses in the chorus. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day, day I will never forget. After I'd wandered in darkness away, Jesus, my Savior, I met. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend. (laughs) I can barely get through it now. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend. He met the needs of my heart. Shadows dispelling with joy I am telling. He made all the darkness depart. You know, when I refound my darkness, I kind of liked it. (laughs) (laughs) Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross, the Savior made me whole. My sins were washed away and my night was turned to day. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. And this one, I, I think, is even even sappier and more overwrought. <laughs> now I have a hope that will surely endure after the passing of time. I have a future in heaven for sure, there in those mansions sublime. And it's because of that wonderful day when at the cross I believed, riches eternal and blessings supernal from his precious hand I received. That's kind of a segue into the next thing we're going to talk about with the hymns, but I'm going to leave that there and bookmark it for right now. Oh, and incidentally, we we already did the perfect submission part too, but um, this is my story. Was I, I think that for probably four or five years running, 
that was what I walked into church singing. That was one of our, that was our senior pastors, like favorite hymn ever. Every single week we would start out with the chorus to, um, to blessed assurance. And, uh, this is my story. This is my song praising my savior all the day long. Yeah. Get used to it. Cause that's all you're going to be doing in heaven. Yeah. Um, regardless of what any of the hymns want to tell you about heaven, that's all you're going to be doing is praising your savior all the day long forever and ever and ever and ever. So yeah, start getting used to it now if that's your thing. Actually, I'm, I'm going to go just a little bit uh, deeper into this one because the next verse is so completely and totally overwrought. It, uh, it bears a mention here. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy and whispers of love. Isn't that just warm and syrupy? This was another one. Yeah. At uh, at Word of Life, it was like huge, absolutely huge, and and I'm pretty sure that most of our uh, music groups in college did this one at least once. This was a hymn called "He Keeps Me Singing," and here's just some of the lyrics. There's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low. Fear not, I am with you. Peace be still in all of life's ebb and flow. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. Um, I'll go on record. He didn't fill any of my longings. No. Not even remotely. And these songs, these are the songs that gave birth to some of the worst toxic positivity themes in modern worship music too. Songs like I'm Trading My Sorrows, if you remember that one. I remember it vaguely. I'm Trading My Sorrows, I'm Trading My Pain, I'm Laying Them Down for the Joy of the Lord. And then there's the part about I'm pressed but not crushed, persecuted not abandoned, wounded but not destroyed. I am blessed beyond the curse for his promise shall endure that his joy is going to be my strength. And it just gets worse from there. <laughs> and then there was there was one, and yeah, it's it's biblically based, but still toxically positive, called You Turn My Morning Into Dancing. And that that's an ongoing theme in worship music yeah. too. And you know what? That's the tip of the iceberg. That is the tip of the iceberg, the very tip, a crystal on the very tip. And you can see how learning to think this way, especially when the message is set to music, sets the individual up to have a very narrow view of life and robs them of the ability to come up with effective ways of dealing with their problems, their negative emotions. And then guess what? They go to a Christian counselor and they're told to pray <laughs> and probably listen to some uplifting Christian music. And that right there is just one of the toxic messages that we find in Christian music. Let's talk for a minute about God's love. Now, we're going to revisit this subject in just a few minutes, but I want to just mention a few of the hymns that turn the volume up on the God is Love message, literally to 11. There are so many. I'm just going to read off some of the titles that, um, at least to me, speak for themselves. And if you look at this list, there are literally 187 hymns that fall under the category of Christ's love. We've got Jesus, lover of my soul. Jesus loves even me. Oh, that's that's a great sentiment right there. Just yeah. like in, in Amazing Grace, because we're just a whole bunch of wretched sinners whose righteousness is his filthy rags. So Jesus loves even me. Um, Jesus loves me, this I know. Oh, and by the way, Jesus loves you. That's another one. Jesus, name of wondrous love. I've said Jesus enough times. Let's see what else we have here. Um, his love for me, his love is all I need. 
His love is always true. Oh my God, the lies. Um, his love can never fail. Well, I guess since he's never shown any, um, let's see. How loving is Jesus? I am his. He is mine. I stand amazed in the presence. Savior, thy dying love. Oh, that's that's uplifting. Um, sing of Jesus' love. No, thank you. The tender love of Jesus. There is joy in my soul. And there's a couple, a couple hymns that are called There is Joy in My Soul. We have felt the love of Jesus. Well, good for you. I never did. When love shines in, and it just keeps going and going and going, yeah. it's uh, it's amazing how pervasive this one particular theme actually is. And then there are more modern songs that are related to this theme, like Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, which actually, that was in their, in their list. That, that's not a hymn. It's a modern song. But I guess it's in some hymnals. Um, then you've got Pass It On. You know that one, right? Yeah. It only takes a spark to get a fire going. I like that song, but like, no. I like the melody of it. Yeah. And I like the memories of VN because it was a big VN song. Oh, yeah. And we sang that all the time at VN. To me, one of the more innocuous ones out there, but still there's there's bad messaging in it. It only takes a spark to get a fire going, and then soon all those around can warm up and it's glowing. That's how it is with God's love once you experience it. You spread his love to everyone you want to pass it on. And then the next part is even worse. It says, how I wish for you, my friend, this happiness that I've found. You can depend on him. It matters not where you're bound. Get unbound. There's the solution there. <laughs> I'll shout it from the mountaintops. I want my world to know the son of love has come to me. I want to pass it on. And I think there's actually even a couple more verses that oh, I'm probably. not I'm not even thinking about right now, but that's it in a nutshell. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? How about a fuck about humanity? There that's what more he could give. Mm. And then praise and worship music is saturated with this kind of mind-numbing nonsense. You've got songs like I Could Sing of Your Love Forever by Delirious, which... Actually, I loved back in the day, and I was proud of myself. I was proud of myself this week because when I saw that title in a list of examples, I literally had to go to YouTube to be <laughs> reminded about what the melody was because it was so far out of my mind. It's like kudos to you for shoving that shit so far out of there. Of course, now it's all right back in the forefront because this is what I do, but I can forgive that. Yeah. At least I managed to forget it once, and I'll, I'll forget it again. I'll, I'll make sure that that happens. But um, then you've got, I think this was an Integrity Hosanna one, Arms of Love. You remember this one? No. I sing a simple song of love to my Savior, to my Jesus. I'm thankful for the things you've done, my loving Savior, my precious Jesus. Uh, and it goes on from there. Yeah, I it don't... just gets sappier from there. Yeah, that that's one I don't know. Yeah, I mean it's it it kind of falls into the the category of being in love with Jesus. We did a whole episode on that concept too. Yeah. She doesn't come right out and say it, but the sentiment is there. You know that Jesus is practically her lover. You know yeah. that's and and it, it's kind of creeptastic. Um, then there were songs like "Who Have I But You." Your love is amazing, steady and unchanging. Um, and then another one from our friends Delirious or Deliriu5, question mark. 
Don't don't forget that the question mark was there oh, either. Yes, yes. Delirium five question mark. So and, edgy. And yeah, and then they had their song Deeper, which also is well within the realm of falling in love with Jesus. It's right there in the lyrics. Hmm. And the wonder of it all is that I'm living just to fall more in love with you. You know, it's a very one-sided relationship, guys, any way you want to slice it. And, and that's a very, very small smattering of what's in the category of God's love and this this craziness of, you know, being in love with a character in a book. But people have fallen in love with other characters in books, too. So, mm-hmm. you know, there is that. But let's talk about the concept of death in Christian music. What about hymns that glorify and romanticize the concept of death? Oh, there's a few of those, and some of the above examples go there, too. Some of the ones that we've already mentioned mm-hmm. actually go there. So let's look at a few of the hymns that teach us to be happy about the fact that we're going to die. Amazing Grace is, like, number one on the list. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Is that supposed to be a selling factor? <laughs> I mean, I don't even like to do things that I enjoy for more than, you know, a, may, maybe a couple of weeks at a time. Okay. <laughs> this is not something that ever really appealed to me. And unfortunately, I needed to read my Bible a little bit more carefully. Um, then there's Holy, Holy, Holy. There's the verse in there about all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea, and just how epic it's going to be when we're all dead and in heaven. It is well with my soul. We already touched on a little bit there. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, praise the Lord, O my soul. It's like we're, we're... and Lord, haste the day. You know, take me now, Lord. That's pretty, I mean, <laughs> yeah. the, that's the sentiment right there. Um, in the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. Won't it be lovely and beautiful when we're all dead? Um, I'll fly away. And you know what? There are a lot of Christians that didn't like that hymn just because that's what it was about. It's like, we need to save this one for funerals and not be singing it in uh, in praise and worship services, which I kind of agreed with. But I mean, it it is, this entire hymn is about how great it's going to be to die. You know, some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away to my home on God's celestial shore. I'll fly away. Just a few more weary days and then I'll fly away to my home where joy will never end. No, just supplication (laughs) will never end. That's what's never going to end. I'll fly away. Yeah, I, I think that's a uh, revival song, like a camp meeting song. It has parts. The guys oh, a lot are of supposed them did. to mm-hmm. sing one part, and the women are supposed to sing another. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of them. Even, even on this list, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms is like that, too. Yeah. I used to kind of like singing them in parts like that, because we oh, did yeah. that. I mean, that was that was our, our senior pastor's kind of thing, mm-hmm. and uh, we did that a lot. And I actually kind of enjoyed that. The participation aspect of this does have a draw, that's for sure. Oh, sure. And then there's the old rugged cross. Um, so I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Yeah, this was That happens I... when you're dead. Yeah. Okay, that happens when you're dead. 
And these songs paved the way for more recent examples of songs that suggest that some people are better off dead. I think immediately of Home Free by Wayne Watson and If You Could See Me Now by Truth, both songs about death after prolonged illness. Home Free, I'll admit that I used this one at funerals more than once. I sang it at more than one funeral. But the chorus to this song is home free eventually at the ultimate healing we'll be home free. Home free. Oh, I've got a feeling at the ultimate healing we'll be home free. And this was kind of my grandmother's sentiment before she went. Yeah. She's like, she she was all about it's time for me to go home and be with Jesus. Then there's If You Could See Me Now, which I'm going to pop up here and just read a little bit of. It starts out with, our prayers have all been answered. I finally arrived. The healing that had been delayed has now been realized. No one's in a hurry. There's no schedule to keep. We're all enjoying Jesus, just sitting at his feet. If you could see me now, I'm walking on streets of gold. If you could see me now, I'm standing tall and whole. If you could see me now, you know I've seen his face. If you could see me now, you'd know the pain's erased. You wouldn't want me to ever leave this place if you could only see me now. And they played that. I'm pretty sure they played that at my grandmother's funeral. Mm -hmm. Somebody either sang it or they played it. Then there's the concept of reward after death that songs like Thank You by Ray Bolts romanticize and ones like That's All the Lumber by Eli warn about. So thank you, just to give you the the overall synopsis here without having to go too heavily into the lyrics, is about a guy who dies and goes to heaven and all of the people that he led to Jesus start coming up to him and thanking him because they're there too. The last verse says something like, one by one they came as far as the eye could see, each life somehow touched by your generosity. And it's like, so this is the whole point. This is the whole point. Do good works so that you can earn a nice little prize like this. Well, then there's That's All the Lumber, which is a cautionary tale about not doing good enough works. The story in this song is about a guy who dies and goes to heaven, and St. Peter brings him to, you know, there's that verse about, in my house there are many mansions, Well, they pass by all these mansions and they stop in front of a two-room shack and St. Peter says, I hope you're happy with that because that's all the lumber you sent. And later on in the song, the man asks if he can be sent back to earth to try and get this right. And St. Peter says, it's not up to me, but if it was, I'd love to see just how you plan to improve. And he goes through this litany of things that he's going to do to make things better. And he says, and when I get back to this neighborhood, there'll be a gigantic pile of wood. And I'll ask you, what's this I see? And you'll say, that's all the lumber you sent. So a nice little anthem about works and why you should be annoying the shit out of every person you meet about this thing called the gospel. Yeah. So that you can have a nice mansion in heaven. And Petra took this messaging in both directions, too, on the same album, no less. Their album, Not of This World, contains two songs about death, one joyful and one cautionary, Grave Robber and Bema Seat, uh, respectively. Grave Robber talks about how great it's going to be when we all die and rise from our graves because of the power of Jesus at at the end of the world. And we'll take just a, a little bit of a look at these. The chorus says, where is the sting? Tell me, where is the bite when the grave robber comes like a thief in the night? Where is the victory? Where is the prize when the grave robber comes and death finally dies? 
Oh, and here's the verse. Here's the verse that always stuck with me that gave me chills back in the day and is raising the hairs on the back of my neck now. Many still mourn and many still weep for those that they love who have fallen asleep. But we have this hope, though our hearts may still ache, just one shout from above and they all will awake. And in the reunion of joy, we will see death will be swallowed in sweet victory. And then we get to go to heaven and have no sense of self, no sense of autonomy, and spend eternity in subservience and submission and veneration of this awful deity. Doesn't that sound like fun? Um, and then Bema Seat is another one that is all about works and why we need to uh, make sure that we're doing good works while we're here. It says every talent will be surely counted. Every word will have to be accounted. Not a story will be left untold. We will stand and watch the truth unfold. Every score will be evened. Nothing to defend. And actually, before that, I think the words that come before that are also uh, relevant here. Will your treasure pass the test or will it burn up with the rest? You may build upon a sure foundation with your building in dilapidation. When it all comes down to rubble, will it be wood, hay, or stubble, or precious stones, gold, and silver? Are you really sure? You know, talk about a little cautionary tale about why you should be out there spreading the gospel. And that's the point that they're making with that song, too. And in this category, I would be remiss if I neglected to mention the song To Live is Christ by Steve Fry. This one, hold on to your seats. Those of you who are out of this or have never been in it, you're going to find this appalling because I do. This is the first verse to this song. It says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. There is no other life I desire to claim than the life that's dead that I might live again. No more in self to pride for I have died and to live is Christ and to live is Christ for I have been crucified and to live is Christ. Where do where do you even go with that? Yeah. Where do you even go with the toxicity of that? And this and and I met plenty of Christians who thought like this and were looking forward to their own death because of what was waiting on the other side. And it's rage inducing to me now to think about these kinds of thoughts being shoved into people's heads from the time that they're young, because these were young people, these were college age people who were already looking forward to their own deaths because they believed that things would be so much better for them when they were dead. Imagine what happens when these people develop depression later in life. I mean, seriously, I can't even with the sheer audacity of those lyrics. So to move on yet again, and you know, I, I, can, I, can, feel, I can feel my own shoulders hunching as yeah. we go through this. So it's like, okay, okay, spider, relax your body just a little bit and prepare to tense up again because we're going to talk about purity propaganda now. I can remember a few songs back in the day that we used to play on the Christian radio station I worked for that had overt themes of what a Christian woman was supposed to be. They had titles like Virtuous Woman and Woman of the Word, and then there was the one set to Proverbs 31.30, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I remember those immediately, but I'm sure that there were plenty more. Those were just your run-of-the-mill misogynistic themes. What I find even more sinister is when they push purity doctrine. I want to zero in on three songs in particular, and one that was particularly toxic based on how it accidentally went mainstream. Let's start with Somewhere in the World by Wayne Watson. I swear I heard this song at every girl's baby dedication for years running. 
it's a super creepy song that while all speculative, really, really, really comes across like someone surveilling an underaged girl. And what do I mean by that? This is what I mean by that. Somewhere in the world today, a little girl will go out to play, all dressed up in her mama's clothes. At least that's the way I suppose it goes. Somewhere in the world tonight, before she reaches to turn out the light, she'll be praying from a tender heart, a simple prayer that's a work of art. And I don't even know her name, but I'm praying for her just the same, that the Lord will write his name upon her heart. Because somewhere in the course of this life, my little boy will need a godly wife. So hold on to Jesus, baby, wherever you are. That's a wonderful reason for wanting somebody to embrace all this indoctrination and bullshit because I want my son to marry a good Christian woman. So be a good Christian woman so that my son has somebody to marry. <sighs> don't yeah. even don't even get me started on that bullshit. I mean, I already did. It's my own <laughs> fault. But don't don't press don't press my buttons any further on that one because now we get to talk about a little song called Butterfly Kisses. For starters, can I just say that I was flabbergasted at how long ago this came out. This was 1995. Yeah, I'm thinking mid-00s, all right? But yeah, no, 1995. So Butterfly Kisses was a song by Bob Carlyle, who was the front man for the somewhat okay Christian rock band, The Allies. I mean, I found them tolerable, but they only ever put out one song that I can actually say I liked. And that was in the mid-80s. So fast forward far fewer years than I originally thought, and I hear this very familiar voice singing this song that even then I knew was a little off. For starters, had I had a daughter, I couldn't even imagine thinking some of the things that are in this song. I would never have kept my daughter on the short leash that these lyrics dictate, mostly because of my girlfriend's senior year of high school. I learned a lot from her parents about how to fuck up your daughter. And like I've done in many areas of my life, I zeroed in on the don't do's in that situation a lot more than the do's. And I swore, I swore after that whole situation came to a head, I swore that I would never, ever, 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 ever treat my daughter like property if I ever had one. Because that's what they were doing. It was sick and it was twisted and it was wrong on so many levels. But when you're 17 and you're looked at as the enemy, there's not a whole hell of a lot you can do about it. But that sort of thing is what purity culture is all about. And before it was a huge thing, this song was kind of a playbook for it. So, okay, let's look at some of these lyrics. And I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to spare myself and the audience from too much of this. But this is the part that really, really made me cringe back in the day, just the whole context of this verse. It says, sweet 16 today, she's looking like her mama a little more every day. One part woman, the other part girl, I can feel my skin crawling right now, to perfume and makeup from ribbons and curls, trying her wings out in a great big world. But I remember butterfly kisses after bedtime prayer, sticking little white flowers all up in her hair. You know how much I love you, Daddy, but if you don't mind, I'm only going to kiss you on the cheek this time. Pregnant pause that I'm leaving in. <sighs> I mean, just at 16, this is the first time that the idea of not kissing your father on the lips has crossed your mind? Seriously? Back then, 
that line made my skin crawl. Yeah. In the context, I mean, you know what? A little girl, you know, a five or six-year-old girl, that's one thing. I still think that it's a little out there, but that's one thing. Once she's 16, in whose family is this still, Is this a conversation that has to happen? Yeah. I can remember just hearing that on the radio and thinking, seriously, Bob? Really? 16 years old? That's pushing it, my friend. That is That is really, really pushing it. Um, but the thing I hate most about this song, more than the concept of a 16-year-old girl kissing her father on the lips, is its dishonesty. No evangelical girl, and I mean no evangelical girl, is ever encouraged to spread her wings and fly. Most evangelical fathers would sooner pin their daughters down in a photo album than give those wings the first chance to unfurl. And at the end of the song, she's not exactly spreading her wings, is she? She's leaving the control of one male for that of another. She'll change her name today. She'll make a promise and I'll give her away. Submissive to daddy and then submissive to her husband. Uh, where exactly is she flying to, Bob? To the kitchen? To the ladies' prayer luncheon? Where's the verse about she graduated med school today? <laughs> You know, where the hell is that? So leaving that thought dangling in your head, we're going to talk about another song in the same realm of ridiculousness called Modest is Hottest. This song is so offensive. It even raised the hackles of a lot of evangelical parents. I keep wanting to say this was Matthew Ward, that no. the, the, the lovable discount Jesus looking guy from the group second chapter of Acts. But no, this was Matthew West, who I may have heard of once or twice when I was working at the station. But this was many, many years after that. So he put this song out there on YouTube and on a bunch of different platforms. And when it started uh, generating backlash, he backpedaled like crazy and tried to play it off as satire. But let's think about this for just a second. You know, Steve Taylor was a satirist. And while some of his music reeks of homophobia, and some even pokes fun at mental health issues, and we're going to get into that a little bit more in, in a couple of minutes. His delivery was still a thousand percent more classy than this shit. You could tell, you could tell that Steve was being tongue-in-cheek. The, the song Cash Cow comes screaming to mind when I think about tongue-in-cheek and Steve Taylor in the same thought. But this... I'm sorry, this is something that became satire when this fool was called out for just how toxic the messaging was. First, let's look at some of the lyrics, and I won't burden you with much of this. Here's the line that sparked the whole TikTok thing around this song. He says, if I catch you doing dances on the TikTok in a crop top, so help me God, you'll be grounded till the world stops. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. And that's just a smattering of what's in this song. And if you have the notion, it's also in the show notes. So uh, I'm going to leave that there. I mean, I don't want to, I don't even want to waste time reading more of the lyrics. Instead, I think that the Daily Mail did a much, much better job than I could of synopsizing the contents of this song and the backlash that it got. And this was just from the perspective of social media. Here is what they had to say. This is how they synopsized this whole thing. With uh, one, two, three, four, five, six little bullet points, they encapsulate this really well. They said Matthew Ward, 44, released a music video for a song called Modest is Hottest in which he addresses his daughter Luella, 15, and Delaney, 12. He tells them to dress, quote, a little more Amish and a little less Kardashian 
unquote, and cover their bodies in turtlenecks and trousers. In the video, which has been deleted, he makes the girls dress in layers and covers them up at the pool. Social media users have criticized the, quote, gross song, calling it, quote, a grooming narrative that allows men to avoid accountability when they abuse women. And I agree wholeheartedly with that sentiment. West has been called out for body shaming his own daughters and promoting toxic ideas that contribute to rape culture and blame women for men's actions. Upon deleting the video, he insisted it was supposed to be funny and satire, but, but, but did not apologize. Chew on that for a second or two. Now, here's the worst part of this, in my opinion. When he first posted the video, Matthew West described it as his, quote, ridiculously silly way of reminding his daughters that their appearance doesn't define them. I'm sorry, but this song fails miserably at that. It's all about how their appearances define them. It has literally everything to do with that. If you dress less Amish and more Kardashian, it defines you as a girl with less worth than one who dons a turtleneck and a sensible pair of slacks. Really, Matt? That's what you're trying to communicate to your own daughters and to your fans? Dude, three words for you. Epic fucking fail. Okay? And here's why so many evangelicals, especially evangelical women, didn't like it. This is from a blog by a Christian blogger, she who only goes by the name Becca, but um, what what she has to say here is meaty. And, you know, I will, I will readily admit that I hadn't quite thought about this, but it's absolutely true because I went through something similar. When I was in high school, my Christian school divided the boys and girls up for a little purity chat. The girls went into a classroom where a school administrator rolled a giant mirror across the front of the room to show what the view was if we weren't sitting properly in our skirts. We were lectured on how we presented ourselves to the world so that we didn't cause our brothers to stumble. I later asked a male friend what the boys talked about in their session. They played hacky sack. Mm. If you've been baffled as to why there's hurt around purity culture or why Matthew West faced backlash for a lighthearted song, that's why. And I think that that quote encapsulates this thing really, really, really well because when they did the whole separating the boys from the girls thing, and they did this at Word of Life, and they did it a couple of times in Pentecostal settings too, they did preach at us a little bit. But I do know that the talking to that we got versus the talking to that the girls got was, it it was the difference between night and day in terms of things like personal responsibility and being the one who sets the tone in the relationship for where anything sexual is going to go you know, we were told that uh, that we were responsible for, for maintaining self-control. But at the same time, the girls were told that we were basically incapable of maintaining that self-control. So there's counter-messaging going on in both groups. So it wasn't as bad as just being sent into a room to play hacky sack. But in a lot of ways, we might as well have been. Yeah. You know, it, it might as well have just gone that way. And this notion is perpetuated that boys don't have to worry about how they're perceived. And it's true because yeah. most of most of what they talked about with us in those in those moments didn't have anything to do with anybody's perception of us. It was just more of a uh, God is watching you so keep your dick in check kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's up to the girls to not cause their brothers to stumble in the first place. And that way their dicks don't get involved. And, you know, when a boy gets his girlfriend pregnant in Bible college, he gets a degree. 
she gets expelled. We watched this happen. Yep. He got to finish his degree, and they tossed her out like she was trash. That's why shit like this matters, Matthew West. So you know what? Find a new fucking joke, okay? Joke my ass. He meant every every word of it. Oh, yeah. Now, let's talk about a prick named Benji Cowart. In 2014, there was a little song called Rude by Magic. I guess Magic is a person, not a band. I'm not quite sure. Kind of like The Weeknd is a person, not a band. But I remember the song pretty well. And I'm not, to this day, I'm not sure what I think of it. On the one hand, it brings you back to that teenagery place where love was the best thing ever and you fell in love at the drop of a hat. And it was so crazy intense that you thought nothing could ever, 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 ever tear you apart from that person that you loved. Or wait a minute, was that last year? Okay. Um, Little spider in the confessional here. Um, On the other hand, as a 40-something, at the time, I was sitting there thinking, this sounds good and all, but starting out in life with someone, knowing that the decision involves estrangement from your family, is only going to seem romantic for a little while. After that, it's gonna suck. So I guess you could say it's not my favorite song in terms of messaging. I think that it paints a dangerous picture in the minds of young of a young person of what love and romance and, and marriage are supposed to be. But that's not the song I want to zero in on. What I want to talk about is Benji Cowart's over-the-top, hyper-reactionary, glorifying violence, threatening murder, purely and proudly evangelical response. So let's look at these lyrics. He says, Why you gotta call me rude for doing what a dad should do? Keep her from a fool like you. And if you marry her anyway, you marry that girl, I'm going to punch your face. Marry that girl, I'll make you go away. Marry that girl at the bottom of a lake. So take out the marry that girls, you get I'm going to punch your face, I'm going to make you go away at the bottom of a lake. Talk about love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. And then he says, I know what you're thinking. You think you'll still take her. Well, give it your best shot. I may be a Christian, but I'll go to prison. I'm not scared of doing hard time. Isn't that just lovely? Wouldn't, wouldn't you just love for this prick to be your father? And I love how in the midst of all of this, this doting, semi-frumpy mom walks into the shot and she's doing the laundry because of course she is, because this is what a good Christian wife does. She does the laundry and, and she supports her idiot husband while he goes on a rant about murdering a kid for wanting to marry his daughter. Here's how a responsible father would have penned this response. You're going to get some of the spider's own lyrical stylings here. This is the song that I would have written. Saturday morning, you came to my house, nervous and scared to death, seeking permission to marry my daughter. Bruh, I know what's in your head. It's really all right. You and I don't have to fight, but I think we should talk man to man, because marriage is really a very big step that I just don't think you understand. Can you even think about the rest of your life? I'm thinking, no, 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 you can't possibly know what you even want in an eventual wife. Yeah, you think you do, but I'm telling you right now. Boy, you better think this through. There's so much that you could do. Why you want to be tied down before you know the ups and downs of life and love and this thing called romance. This isn't love, just a bulge in your teenage pants. Dude, I've been there and I haven't the room to judge, but there's a difference between real love and lust. And notice that I'm not making decisions for my daughter, just trying to get through to Romeo. And that's the way it should be. 
And although I think the daughter needs a verse too, the messaging would be about the same. I wouldn't be chaining her to a radiator. I'd be making sure she understood the good, the bad, and the ugly of the situation too, because that's what a responsible parent does. Not threaten to drown a kid in a lake while mom bebops to the music carrying a laundry basket. Fuck off, both of you. You're not doing anything for society and you are not coming across as good parents. So now we come to the last part of our conversation here. And I've saved kind of the cream of the crop from my teenage years for last year. And we're going to talk a little bit more about a guy called Steve Taylor. Steve Taylor gets his own category here, not so much because he's the worst offender, but because he had the most influence on me as a teenager. His music and its messaging formed the basis for a lot of what I chose to believe. Long before the Bible, long before any sermon, long before my youth passed, or, or far above any of those things, it was Steve Taylor's music that really stuck in my head that made me think the way that I did about a lot of things. So we're going to zero in on him just a little bit here. Now, to be fair, his music did have some important warnings about things that I always saw to be wrong with Christianity. He sang about the dangers of just following the crowd in his song, I Want to Be a Clone. That song was a response to the errant idea that personal faith somehow had uniform rules that everyone had to follow. He decried word faith doctrine in several songs, including Guilty by Association and You Don't Owe Me Nothing. He spoke out against abortion clinic bombings in I Blew Up the Clinic Real Good, and the dangers of avarice and misplaced pride in several songs, including On the Fritz, Drive He Said, You've Been Bought, and the aforementioned Cash Cow. But he also had lyrics like these. I heard the reverend say, gay is probably normal in the good Lord's sight. What's to be debated? Jesus never stated what's right. I'm no theology nut, but the reverend may be a little confused, because if the Lord don't care and he chooses to ignore it, tell it to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Call it just an alternate lifestyle, huh? Reality lies within. Conscience is arrested. Please repeat the question again. Whatever happened to sin? In other words, being gay is a sin. And then there's another line in that song where it says, when the closets are empty and the clinics are full, when your eyes have been blinded by society's wall. In other words, if you start thinking in any secular direction whatsoever, you're in trouble. He made fun of mental health professionals and their methods in his song, Young and the Restless. That's Young as in Carl Young, J-U-N-G. And the message here is, don't replace God with a therapist. Rushed from the fire to the frying pan and trust your soul to a shrinking man? Served with smiles and a noble intent, I think this waiter has a fake accent. And then there's the part at the end, the little spoken word part at the end, where it's supposed to be a woman in a therapy session talking about a dream she had where she says she was in a mental ward for a little shock treatment when a sudden power surge hit her with 50,000 volts. And she says, then I floated down a tunnel to a shining man in white. And when I could finally make out his face, it was you, doctor. So what's the implication there? Don't make a God out of your therapist. Make a God out of God. That's pretty much what he's saying. And then there's a little song called Bad Rap, a.k.a. Who You Try in a Kid Kid, with its admonishment to, quote, drop six words in your open minds about everything from pro-life agenda to free thought to liberal activism to why you're an idiot if you don't have faith. And more to the point, it kind of points a finger at atheism. Convictions make your skin to crawl. You act like you're above it all. You say faith is a crutch for a mind that's closed. Well, you guzzle your crutch and shove it up your nose. Yeah, because every atheist 
just out there is is uh, is miserable, and um, we're all alcoholics who snort cocaine. Okay, you know whatever, whatever, Steve. We're just a bunch of miserable drug addicts because we reject ecclesiastical fairy tales. Then, in the early '90s, a new band emerged called Chagall Guevara, headed up by you guessed it, Steve Taylor. He said the band name meant artistic freedom since Chagall was an artist and Che Guevara was a freedom fighter. Well, Mark Chagall's work was kind of warped, just to, to put it lightly. It was kind of warped. And Che Guevara, um, he was a Marxist. So it's okay to be a communist thinker, but not an atheist. Got it. Uh, the first song on their one and only self-titled album, the song Murder in the Big House, is all about what will happen to Christianity if atheists have their way in the world. No, I'm not kidding, and here's just a sampling of the lyrics. All of us Neros fanning ourselves, damp with the sweat of regret, just killing time with our eyes to the skies, waiting on science, our savior. This is the sound of your rooftop coming down. It's time to meet the maker. This is the sound of the floorboards caving in. This is the knock of the undertaker. This house is crumbling. This property is condemned. This house is crumbling. Who will say the last amen? And the house in question is secularism, by the way. Yes. Honestly, honestly, there's way more that we can get into here um, on all these fronts. But I think that... We've made the point clear. There are many, many reasons why the average evangelical believes the things that they do, and a huge number of them come from the music that they listen to and sing in church. We didn't even get into worship music and the crazy shit you find in that genre too deeply because, as preparation for this episode progressed, it occurred to me that the toxicity that exists in praise and worship is truly in a category all its own. It's also radically different than the types of toxicity we discussed about these other genres. Praise and worship perpetuates toxic ideas present in evangelical doctrine and sears them into the brains of believers so they go on believing. Its other toxic trait is how nonsensical so much of it is. Lots of praise and worship lyrics are such word salad, it's enough to make your brain itch. But that's kind of a different take on toxicity than where this conversation went. So if you want some specific commentary on praise and worship, check out episode 12 of our show, Raised Hands, Closed Eyes, The Appeal of Modern Worship Music. We have a lot more to say about it there. In any context, music is a powerful medium. Our brains play well with it. And when we spend years singing hymns and worship music and listening to CCM of all description, an insane amount of information makes it into our brains and stays there. Well, you can counter that. Well, can you counter that with secular music? Uh, not so much. And that's not the point, really. The point is that we need to start recognizing where those thoughts came from. They came from songs, not the Bible. Not even anything with the level of authority of the average pastor. Not even from sermons. We don't retain much from sermons. We retain music, and it's the music that taught us what we believe. It's the music that beckoned us to the altar time and time again. It's the music that elicited those crucial emotional responses that led to automatic submission to calls to action to rededicate our lives to Christ, seek the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and let's not forget, first and foremost, to make that vital first step to the altar to meet Jesus for the first time. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Just as I am without one plea, they play these songs softly in the background and let your brain absorb them as they convince you to make that trip to the altar. It all has to do with music. So 
If so much of what we believe comes only from songs, why place undue stock in those beliefs? If you've listened this far, you're at least considering that the things that you believe aren't as firmly grounded in truth as you've been taught to think they are. You need better foundations for the things you believe than song lyrics, but I hate to say it, a lot of people's faiths find their foundation in the lyrics to Christian music. Now, here's the litmus test. If you can quote more verses to your favorite praise and worship songs than you can quote verses from the Bible, count yourself among that number. And honestly, that was me, and it was a lot of Christians around us too. We get a lot of our doctrine from hymns, worship songs, Christian rock, and more. The result? It made us delusional, narrow-minded, and clueless about just how toxic our thinking actually was. Fortunately, some of us make it to a place where we understand this, and we hope we've helped bring you a step further toward understanding it too. Because if you reach a point where you're anywhere between embarrassed and appalled by how much Christian music influenced your thoughts and behavior, the toxic themes start to release their grip on you. You start seeing the absurdity in taking it all so seriously. You start thinking better. And when that happens, it's proved positive that you're well on your way to getting and staying unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.